Welcome to the PhD in Parenting Podcast. The podcast where we talk about being a parent in academia and an academic at home. We're your hosts. This is Judith. And I'm Erin. We're two mothers with a total of seven kids ages 1 to 18 and two PhDs in English. I'm an assistant professor of English and I also serve as the program director. And I'm an acquisitions editor for an academic press. In the 10 years that we've known each other and seen our families grow, we've often found it difficult to relate to our families what it's like to be an academic and to relate to our colleagues what it's like to have kids. So during this pandemic, we decided to start this podcast to counter our isolation and to connect with other parents in academia. Thanks so much for being here and lending us your ears. Okay, so before we dive into this week's episode, Erin, we're we're on episode 25, so that's exciting. Let's catch up a little bit. Um, how's your semester wrapping up? Are you all done? I tried to get in touch with you a couple times uh, last week, and you seemed really busy. What's been going on? So it's kind of always a busy time. I was looking at social media, and I can always see my friends who are also teaching classes right now because everyone's like grading papers, grading papers, you know, making the comments. That's all kind of where I've been at this last week, just trying to make sure I get everything graded on time and caught up. It has been a weird semester, as we know, pandemic aside. We just tried a lot of new things this semester in my program. So we had like new assignments new rubrics, just a lot of new things. And it was kind of a stressful one. Part of my job is also service, as we all know. And I had a lot of service work going on this week as well, because at my college, we're kind of considering what they call the SVC. That's a synchronous virtual course. So those are courses that are online, but have synchronous meeting times. Uh, We're considering those for the future, what it looks like and how we can continue to develop that method of delivery. So there's just a lot going on. Lots of research I was doing, trying to think about what's going to be next for next semester the schedule. And then in the meantime, um, just some home stuff as well. I talked to you a little bit about this, but one of my daughters has started to kind of have some panic and anxiety. That is troubling because I know exactly what she's going through, having had my own bouts with this. And the trouble is when she starts to have an attack, it actually (laughs) triggers my own. So I start to get like so nervous and upset. And it seems like we've just had a really stressful time. In the meantime, Yuda, just following the news and everything that's going on, I've tried to sort of separate myself a little bit from the political, but I think it's just impossible to do that when you're on social media once or twice a day. I think this week we're probably all following the story about this highly offensive editorial in the Wall Street Journal by Joseph Epstein, who writes, Madam First Lady or Mrs. Biden, kiddo, drop the doctor before your name because it sounds and feels fraudulent, not to say even a bit comic. Um, So that is something a lot of us are taking issue with right now. And he argued that only medical doctors should use the title of doctor, which would, of course, exclude Jill Biden and all the hard work that she's done. He even poked fun at her dissertation topic, which I believe was about retention of students in community college. And that just really was like another knife for those of us that work at the community college level and consider issues relating to retention. It just led to a lot of outrage. I'm sure you've seen the posts from academics of all genders, uh, mostly just noting how this just reeks of misogyny. And I wondered how you felt about that and how have you been doing this week as well? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I had to laugh a little bit when this popped up in my feed this morning, too. And I went and read the op-ed that you're referring to. And ultimately, I think what 
we can all come to conclude is that the complaint is more about him and how his own honorary doctorate has lost prestige, I think. My understanding is that he had a BA from the University of Chicago, which is a good school, and and an honorary doctorate, which I don't know, the article didn't refer what he, you know, what he earned that for or whatever. But the the op-ed really just has one paragraph about, you know, how the doctorate isn't what it used to be anymore. And he's sort of basically denigrating the merit of her work and everything by saying that, you know, they don't put us through the ringer like they used to anymore. But then he has three or four paragraphs about how, you know, somebody like Seth Meyers, who also has an honorary doctorate, is really taking prestige away from him, which I just thought ultimately it it very much felt like the article was more about him than it was about Joe Biden. So I was wondering kind of like how serious we should even take it. But I I agree with you that it reeks of misogyny and it's such a uh, and and I was also really appalled by the the way that, you know, I think it's it's really important to have somebody like Dr. Biden in the White House because she is somebody who's going to care about education. And we've talked about this in the past, right? This is going to be very, very good probably for the educational system in the United States. And so to have somebody in a major news publication disparage that in this way is very disconcerting. (laughs) Yeah, I I think that's important to sort of note that. I guess my question to the author would be, well, there's probably thousands of males who also have this PhD degree. So why did Jill Biden have to be the example? (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah, that's very true. What about everyone else? What about everyone else? And I see a lot of people on TV different um, people that offer sort of self-help books and things like that. And I'm always like, I wonder where they got their PhD, though. You know what I mean? And a lot of them are men. Absolutely. And she earned she earned the title. She earned that. She did that work. She put in the work. She earned the title. She has earned the right to use that title. And I just saw that um, Hillary Clinton tweeted in a way that sort of emphasized this is part of her name. This is not the same. A doctorate is not the same as a master's degree, right? A doctorate becomes part of your name in a way that other degrees don't. So for for me, this comes up a lot or sometimes at my work, I will reach out to people and I usually have my PhD in my signature line. Again, because I, I did that. You know, I spent time doing that. And that's part of that's part of who I am and what I've accomplished in my life. And so there it is. And so then uh, and but I usually sign my emails with my first name. I'm completely comfortable with having people address me by my first name. I'm working with other people who also have their doctorates. There doesn't necessarily we don't have to start the conversation with any sort of like a hierarchy or like somebody is more advanced than somebody else because we already have the Ph.D. or we've worked in the field for this long. I don't appreciate when people get my email and then write me back. And sometimes somebody will address me as Miss LeCamper. And I that I don't like because it's a professional environment. My background actually matters to the work that I do. I'm perfectly happy if you want to address me with my first name. That's completely fine. If you're going to pick my last name, then I expect that the doctorate is going to be in there. So I don't know how you feel about that, if that's something that you... And I don't like. I don't mean that to be like a stickler or to be... Um, to be overemphasizing or to be in, in vanity or anything like that. I don't think it's vain to acknowledge the work that we've done. And I think that that's a really gendered concept, too. I know that a lot of people, some of the, some of the people that I know, and more so women than men, tend to be like, oh, I don't want to make a big deal about it. You know, I think it's it can be perceived as condescending or whatever. 
but it really shouldn't be like we shouldn't have to put the work that we put into the degree off to the side or hide it. It's almost like hiding it. We shouldn't have to do that. You know what, though, is interesting. Since I've been teaching online, you know, my students have more limited access to me. I'm talking about our non-synchronous courses. So I make videos every week and I always say, hi, this is Dr. Bell or hello, this is Professor Bell. The weird thing is, even though I've been signing everything that way, my signature says Dr. Bell, my notes for the class say Dr. Bell, I still always have students who default to misses, not even miss, you know, misses. And yes, it is true. I am married to a man. So I am, <laughs> that is not incorrect, but I have not divulged that information. And so it's interesting that nine times out of 10, they will often default to Mrs. Bell. I have, I rather that they call me Aaron or professor. And I've said that even in my, in my messages to them, you know, in my little videos, but I just think it's kind of telling that students often default to the misses. And I'm like, well, I've signed everything doctor. And yet this is so ingrained in, in our minds or in our landscape that I'm misses. I had a question before about who can call themselves professor. I was curious about that because I always thought you had to have a PhD to call yourself professor, but it turns out that is just a title as well. So you might have an MA and be a professor technically. Exactly. It's basically, it just, I think the professor is more a question of are you in an instructor position? Like if you're, you know, and there, whereas the doctor really um, sort of refers to that qualification and that degree that you've earned at a degree granting institution. And I think there's something to be said for, you know, I would rather be defined by the work that I did that earned me the doctorate than by the fact that I'm married to a man. So there's that. I think it's perfectly fair to say I, it doesn't need to be misses. It can be missed because it doesn't matter to my ability to teach this class whether or not I'm married. However, my doctorate is actually what qualifies me to teach this class. So that should be on the forefront. Thanks for backing me up on that one. <laughs> I figured you'd feel the same. Well, so how have you been doing this week? I know you've had still, we're still kind of all living in the pandemic conditions. How's everything been going? And I assume your children are all still remote learning from home now, the ones that are in class. That's correct. Everybody is home with me. And I, not to sound like a broken record, but working from home with three kids of different ages and different needs is a lot. It's definitely taking its toll. I've been really, you know, I've been struggling. I've been very tired. I've been just very exhausted, feeling that it's hard to keep myself motivated. I'm mentally drained. I, you know, I, it's sometimes hard to keep up with like the more mentally challenging aspects of work. And I'm sort of emotionally feeling a little numb at times. I'm struggling with sort of enjoying the things that I usually enjoy and whatnot. So, I've been wondering a little bit about what it is that is so difficult for me in this particular time, because there are a lot of things that I'm really grateful for and a lot of things that I don't have to do right now. So there are actually with everybody being home and no play dates and no sports and no extra activities and no pickups and no drop offs. And everybody's sort of working on their own schedule. When all of the kids are home for a huge part of the day, my older kids are just sort of floating around doing their own thing. And so I have been wondering a little bit about what it is exactly that makes this so difficult for me. And maybe that relates to some of our listeners as well, and maybe to you. So when I try to dig into this a little bit more, I came across the term emotional labor. And I'm sure that you've heard this as many of our listeners probably have heard this before. 
I feel like a lot of what I do throughout the day requires me to identify my kids' needs and to sort of absorb their emotional challenges. So, you know, I have to help them regulate what they're going through, regardless of what it may be. And at the same time, I have to manage my own emotions. And of course, for me, you know, with everybody being home, there's a lot of disappointment involved and there's a lot of other things. We've already talked about the immense pressure that we're putting on us during the holidays and things like that. So I have a lot of my own emotions going on and there's a lot of the kids' emotions. And so with all of that going on, I just thought it would be interesting to look at this concept of emotional labor a little bit more. I can totally relate to a lot of the things that you're saying. And if I'm really honest with you and our listeners, I mean, my energy level just isn't what it normally is. I think the more I'm at home, the more prone I am to just like being in my room. I'm getting everything done, but I just feel like it's all a little bit lackluster. And typically, I always love this time of year, the end of the semester, because it's like treat yourself time. I know that sounds a little corny, but I always try to do at least like one nice thing for myself. I used to have this like end of semester ritual where I'd go get a massage and maybe you know, something else like that, a facial, just treat myself. I've been working really hard for 16 weeks. I can't do that now. And it just seems like the more I'm at home, the more I tend to stay at home. For our listeners outside of the United States, Michigan becomes incredibly dreary this time of year. There's not a lot of sunlight. It's pretty cold, snowy. And I just I'm feeling it a little bit more keenly this time. So I was really excited when you brought up this topic, but I've heard the term emotional labor used in different ways. And sometimes there seems to be a little bit of confusion or back and forth about what the term actually means. I was wondering, since you've done your research, could you define it for us um, in a more detailed way? Yeah, I think you're right about that, that there's a little bit of confusion sometimes about different aspects of the term. I think it's both self-explanatory and not. A lot of people now lump it in with the labor of the mental load, which we've discussed in another episode. So just as a quick reminder, uh, what we talked about in that episode under mental labor is the kind of work that keeps families and households afloat and working, but isn't directly the same as direct um, child caring and chores. So it's more like a mental activity. We have to remember when doctor's appointments have to be scheduled, um, nurturing extended family relationships, such as remembering birthdays, sending cards, making sure that the kids sent presents. And then like something that recently came up, thinking about a good time and place for when to take pictures for the Christmas cards, etc. So things like that. And so that mental load um, is often characterized as invisible labor, which emotional labor is also invisible. However, they're not the same thing. The term emotional labor was really introduced for the first time by Arlie Hochschild, who we already talked about in the past on this podcast, too. This was from her 1983 book, The Managed Heart. The term there in that book describes paid labor that requires a worker to manage their own emotion and project a particular emotion or create a particular emotion in a customer in order to sell a company product. And so the popular go-to example in that context is the flight attendant. She talks about the flight attendant a lot. So the flight attendant, no matter what they're going to in their own home lives, they have to project this feeling of comfort and joy and happiness and just general friendliness in order to make the customer feel comfortable. Other examples, of course, include like a waiting staff, 
and as is very relevant for the podcast, educators. I think this is a very important um, aspect of being a strong educator as well. There's sort of the expectation that your emotions, your own um, experiences stay at home and that you're creating a classroom in which the student can be comfortable and sort of confident in their learning. We've talked about this a little bit before, even last week. But Aaron, could you maybe speak about how this plays out in the classroom for you? To what extent do you feel that you have to manage your own emotions? And what kinds of emotions are you expected to project? Sure. This idea really resonated with me because I was a server for a long time. That was actually one of my longstanding roles. And a lot of times people would be like, oh, wow, that's such a weird switch to go from the service industry, being a waitress or a bartender to going into teaching. And I'm like, actually, it's really not. There's a lot of connections with the way we communicate. And as a server, you know, you always have to have maintain that chipper attitude. You have a million things going on in the background, right? Maybe the chefs ran out of a an item or ingredient, or maybe they're behind, maybe you um, are waiting for a drink from the bar, but you just have to approach a table and be really kind and generous. And, you know, because that's how you're making your money. And so it's interesting one time someone asked me that, like, well, there's such different fields. And I'm like, no, to a certain extent, this idea of that emotional labor really does play into my classroom management. And there's been a lot of times that I've had to really kind of temper my reaction to things. This goes from, you know, the student that I said that got up into my face that was being sort of rude or condescending that I had to sort of like really manage my fear and just kind of put on a brave face. But also the idea of um, sometimes students seem really disconnected and it's really hard. You did. I mean, it's really hard to look out when I was in a face-to-face classroom and see this person that just glaring back at me, right? That just seems like they hate everything about my class. I don't know what I did. I'm not sure if they just don't like English classes in general, but it just seems like everything I try with this person, they just loathe. And that's hard for me because I, you know, really get a lot out of my relationships and and talking with students. I think that can be really hard for me. Um, The other idea that I think plays into this goes once again to that idea of the neoliberal college where we have our students sometimes defined as a customer. And I don't care for that definition. But I realize from a business standpoint, you know, they talk about KPIs and return on investment. We are trying to keep the college afloat, right? But this idea that my student is, quote, a customer, I've really had to temper my responses and really be careful. And sometimes I think that that's a disservice to the students because if I really let my true colors fly, uh, I might have a much different sort of response. I also feel like I have to be this chipper cheerleader all the time too, right? Like keeping everyone happy and upbeat. And I feel like this semester in particular, we were tasked with that even more so than ever. Like we really need to make sure our students are doing well. We really need to make sure that they're feeling okay because everyone's really down and depressed about COVID. There's a lot of stress. There's a lot of anxiety. We need to help our students, you know, manage their emotions. I'm like, but what about my own? Right. And so really trying to be this like upbeat person. And, you know, I am, I guess, and I can put on that persona in the classroom, but that's not how I'm always really feeling feeling. I have my own things going on that, you know, I can't really, it's unprofessional to talk to my students about, but gosh, I've gone through so much whilst teaching where I just had to put on that brave face and be this happy-go-lucky, positive person trying to stay upbeat for the students. I find that a real challenge sometimes because I might be stressed out 
I know the scholar Bell Hooks wrote a little bit about using our emotions and it's okay to have that sort of like pathos or pathos, those experiences with our students and show your emotion. And to some extent I have, I suppose, when we have watched films together and things like that or read a poem, I have actually cried. And I think that's okay. But as far as the things in my personal life, you know, I have to kind of keep that, I have to kind of keep that muted. And Again, sometimes there are students that say things or do things that I really have to just manage my emotional response because, you know, that's the expectation and that's really hard for me. Does this play out in your field as well? It does a little bit and more than I think I originally expected. I, You and I have talked about a little bit before how um, teaching is always sort of a performance and in that re- that does relate a little bit to the work that I do now especially when I travel to conferences. So just a little background on what my att- my conference attendance looks like. Uh, when I do go to a conference in my field, I, we usually attend the national conferences in each of the fields that we acquire in. We have a book exhibit, and, and that's usually staffed by an assistant. And then the acquiring editor schedules meetings with potential authors to learn about their work and to share with them information about what it's like to publish with us. And so for me, these we usually, when we conferences, it's usually three to four days. And what we're doing is we're pretty much scheduling back-to-back meetings with authors. And so as somebody who is more introverted and more used to sort of doing things via email and whatnot... This can be really challenging for me. Sometimes I feel really drained at the end of the day. Part of what's challenging about it is sort of what I found challenging when I was working at the writing center in grad school is this constant switch between different projects, right? So I don't know if you remember what it was like to work in the writing center. I'm sure you you do because you did that a lot more than I did. But just every hour somebody new comes in with a new paper and you have to sort of have this mind shift of learning about this new project. So that's what I do on the one hand. On the other hand, I also am working at sort of making a personal connection because that's part of the work that I do, right? Part of convincing somebody to send me a book proposal has to do with making them comfortable with me and building a positive relationship and making them feel like, you know, I can really help them get the best product out there that they want to see. And so that can sometimes be draining because it does mean that I have to put all of my own personal things aside, all of my emotions, how tired I am, how difficult maybe it is for me to travel, that I'm worried about my kids that are at home that are, you know, that don't have their, that don't have me around, even though I know in theory that they're fine, but you still think about them. You still wonder what they're doing. And and so those things all have to be set aside as you're engaging in these conversations and meeting all of these new people and trying to build positive relationships with um, potential collaborators in the future. So I definitely still face this, not on a daily basis, because these conference meetings don't happen on a daily basis, but still multiple times a year, I have these sort of marathons of going through this with other people. And so it definitely resonates with me. um, And the idea of a performance still, I think, holds in the work that I do now. Now, as I've mentioned before, I think I mentioned that last week, I'm actually, I actually have my first virtual conference coming up. And so I've been thinking of how Zoom is going to 
change that or alter that and if the sort of emotional labor changes in that context. And so I looked a little bit into, I think we all are familiar with the term Zoom fatigue by now. I think we've all heard that Zoom can be sort of tiring and we're all exhausted, more exhausted at the end of a day of Zoom meetings than we are at a normal day of meetings. And so um, I looked into this a little bit and I found an interesting article that analyzed the neuropsychological characteristics of Zoom fatigue. And there were a couple aspects in there that I thought were really interesting that I wanted to share with you to see um, what you think about that. There were three things that stuck out to me in this article. The first one is the aspect of audio delay, which I thought was really interesting because you had actually mentioned that before, that there's something really annoying about this like nanosecond delay of audio where even if you have a good internet connection, right, there's still a little bit of delay. And that interferes with our natural way to communicate with each other. And that's one thing that can be really tiring. Another thing that the article mentions is that there are that there's this idea that we can multitask more. And I don't know if you're guilty of this. I certainly am that like I have multiple screens set up on my computer and I can have a Zoom call on the one screen and then some other work on the other screen that I can try and like do a couple things on the side while nobody is watching me. So this multitasking is very draining. That's of course on top of the multitasking that we're doing because we're now working from home. And the third aspect is what I actually thought was most interesting about video conferencing fatigue, which is that what we usually seek out in human connection, we all know how important human connection is, even for those of us that are introverts. What's good about human connection is this internal reward system that human interaction produces these endorphins, starts dopamine flow, and particularly in human interaction, you and I both know this oxytocin, right? Which is very, which is like the number one hormone that's produced, produced in breastfeeding when you have in the breastfeeding connection with your baby. So it's really important to form that human connection and to sort of keep you going with that. So these hormone flows usually create the opposite of fatigue, which is we feel alert, we feel energized, we feel motivated. And now, but now there's, there are various aspects about Zoom in and of itself, such as the inability to make eye contact with other people. And then again, going back to this like audio delay, there's a sort of delay that's an unnatural part of interacting with each other that prevents this dopamine flow from happening. And so that's where the fatigue comes in. We don't have that internal reward system going on in these meetings. And so that tends to leave us feeling more drained at the end of a, at the end of a day. Do you feel more drained after Zoom teaching than you do face-to-face? It all makes complete sense to me because my first immediate response is I have headaches now after class. I am not a person that's ever been prone to headaches. And now I am like so, I feel so bad for anyone that I can't even imagine a migraine or a migraine as my grandmother used to say, the migraine. I am left and my classes aren't that long, but you know, if I have three, so what I had was three classes on a Tuesday and Thursday, and then plus maybe some Zoom other meetings, I have a headache. I feel like, and it lasts for a long time. I just feel terrible. I was thinking about this too, because I'm a very mobile professor or instructor, meaning I get up, I move around the room, I talk to people. And like when I'm in a Zoom meeting, I'm literally sitting in the same chair and the same desk 
for, you know, four or five hours at a time. And I just feel drained. I'm not getting up. I'm not moving around. So the connection to the dopamine and the endorphins kind of makes sense on a couple levels for me as well. Because then even if you are someone that might be extroverted and you like these meetings in person, I always get nerves. And I think there's a little bit of the adrenaline with it as well. Like, okay, Erin, it's your turn to talk in the meeting. I don't know if anyone else experiences this, but like I'm waiting. I'm like, okay, it's your turn. It's your turn. And I don't have that same sort of like feeling in a Zoom meeting usually. I am guilty of the multitasking. I'm sorry if any of my colleagues are listening. I have two (laughs) laptops usually going simultaneously. So like the Zoom meeting is on the main one. And then sometimes I have something off to the side. It depends on whether we're using cameras or not. So I had this response too about is it harder to connect over Zoom just in this like sort of like basic human way. And I even found like a, a little short article from Fast Company, which is obviously not a scholarly source, but I thought it was interesting because it's connecting this to the business world. But it was talking about how, yeah, you can like sort of have an emotional response via screens because it happens all the time. I'm watching a show and I start to cry because it's moved me emotionally. So I think it's not necessarily the screen, but what they were sort of talking about in the short article is that on the other hand, it's really easy to kind of see how these video calls still feel really unnatural and artificial and that, you know, we can hide our emotions pretty well during these meetings in a way that probably can't take place in person. And then we can also fake emotions as well that you can kind of like really like really nodding your head, really, you know what I mean? Like I'm really into this call. Oh, I better look like I'm really paying attention now because now we're kind of um, looking at the whole view instead of that one person's PowerPoint. So I find all that to be a bit draining. I'm constantly trying to think, how can I do this better? With my classes, I'm sure a lot of the professors listening, a lot of the instructors will probably have tried some of these things out like doing the breakout groups. We do a lot of breakout groups now. I do a lot of like in-class assignments. I have been trying to get up at least in between classes and walk around a little bit, but it does, it, it's definitely a different landscape is all I can say. You, you did, you were introducing this concept of emotional labor to talk about your relationship with your children. And a key term in Hothschild's framework is that labor is paid. That's obviously not the case, of course, when we're talking about our relationship with our own children. So in an interview with Julie Beck from The Atlantic, Hothschild or host child talked about how the terms become sort of associated with all kinds of things, especially with all the kinds of invisible labor that mostly women do. She's very explicit in identifying the danger of associating this kind of labor with emotionality. Because the risk with that is that all of a sudden, all work women do is defined by their emotionality. And then we're in dangerous territory, right? Essentialism that, you know, emotions, women, kind of like what we're talking about a little bit last week as well. I think that's a legitimate question, but I also think that there that Hosha does allow for a little bit of a stretch. Um, certain activities, I think, can be considered emotional labor when they involve us managing certain emotions like fear, anger, anxiety, etc. And in the article that she references, she actually kind of goes back and forth with the interviewer in a lightning round, the interviewer called it, and she gave her some uh, sam- scenarios and said, is this emotional labor or not? And a lot of her responses were like, well, it depends. Well, it depends. Right. So, for example, one one of the examples that came to mind when I was thinking through this is that if I'm in, in charge of meal planning or grocery shopping or doctor's appointments and that doesn't bother me, then there's no emotional labor involved. Then that's the mental load that we talked about. Right. But right. I don't have to manage any emotions surrounding it. But if this is something that I'm resentful about, 
if every time I'm writing a meal plan or I'm at the grocery store, I'm resentful about the fact that I have to do that and that, you know, whatever, my partner isn't doing it every other week. If it's bothersome to me and I don't want to show that, then it becomes emotional labor. But the emotional labor then becomes sort of working through that resentment and dealing with that resentment and projecting the sense of I enjoy doing this or I happily do this or it doesn't even just it doesn't bother me to do this. It's not inherent in tasks that we've described as the mental load. Does that make sense? Uh, Can you think of any examples from the relationship with your kids where this comes into play? It does make sense to me. And that's a really good sort of delineation you've made that there are some things that I don't mind doing. They're not stressing me out. I'm not resentful. But there are tasks that I do find draining where I've asked for help and now I'm resentful. Now I'm angry. Not only am I doing the task, but I'm trying to manage my ire. We have pets. As you know, I actually have two cats and a dog. It just the cleanup after the cats, I find just incredibly disgusting. And I am the only one that does it. And so it's not just that it's disgusting. It's like, I'm actually angry and mad because, you know, um, my husband was like, no, we're not getting cats. I or I don't want a cat. I don't want any other cats. If we're getting them, I refuse to do any cleanup. And he was very clear about that. And we got the cats. So I'm in a bit of a pickle, right? Because now it's like, <laughs> and I've asked the kids for help. And they are also like, well, it's, it's yucky. It's gross. But I feel like I'm, it's just an extra, it's a double sort of whammy, right? I'm like, not only faced with this pretty yucky task, anyone that has cats knows. I know you're talking about kids and I don't want to jump ship too much here, but just thinking about how that sort of plays out sometimes in the workplace as well, where sometimes we're tasked with things or asked to do things or to volunteer for things. And it's not even the work itself so much, but you're perhaps resentful. Yeah, you're making me think about a lot of things too. I'm sure we've all been there with the emails that we write to people, but then don't send. And it's funny because I do, I think I, I am curious to see if once again, this is like sort of a nurtured gender trait, but I will be secretly so infuriated right inside. I, I keep it to myself and I don't think this is healthy by the way at all. So I've been told, you know, write it down and then don't send it. And I've had a lot of that, but there's been a lot of times where people have no idea what I'm thinking because I'm just really good at managing it. I think I'm really good at sort of like managing those emotions, keeping them buttoned up now to my husband and to my mother and to anyone else, possibly you, you all get to hear the real story, right? But I try to compose myself and I try to be diplomatic, but I think a lot of us have to deal with this all the time. And I don't know how healthy that is. Sometimes I think I'd be better off if I just really said how I felt or what I meant. But instead, I'm kind of constantly imagining those emotions, covering them up because I think that's the expectation in my interactions with students, but other, other colleagues. Um, And just in life in general, I think I have a lot of those where I'm like, I'm not going to say it. Don't say it. Yeah. And I think that probably depends on what relationship you're talking about, right? Going back to the original term that we're looking at, if, you know, if we're sort of more limiting it to the work environment, then it makes sense that more emotional management probably maybe makes sense. Um, whereas in within the family, especially within the relationship with our partners, like we've talked a lot about resentment. And if that's something that is being managed, I think there's a point there where you have to sort of go into yourself and think about how much of that you want to manage away and how much of that really should be put on the table and discussed. You said something that you saw really 
interesting connection with was the concept of the empath. And this was something that you've done a little bit of reading about, and you saw some really interesting connections between this concept of emotional labor and the empath. Um, Since you're a little bit more familiar with this term, I would love if you could kind of parse it out for our listeners, give them sort of a working definition of this term and what it means, and then we could sort of talk our way through that sort of idea as well. Right. The way that I started out with the topic for this episode was, again, the question of why is this all so exhausting? And why do I feel so drained by this when there are so many other positives that are happening? And so one of the things that I asked myself was whether or not being an empath might have something to do with the amount of emotional drain that I'm experiencing. And so Dr. Judith Orloff talks about being an empath in her work. And the idea here is the way that she defines that person is that empaths have an extremely reactive neurological system. And there's less of a filter between other people's emotions and the empath's own emotion. And so she's very explicit in saying that being an empath is different from being empathetic. So as educators and as instructors and as people that are, you know, sort of in the, especially as somebody who's, who's, who enjoys literature and has taught literature, I think we're all very strong in empathizing with others, right? That's sort of, at least for me, that's what I love about literature. It gives me an opportunity to put myself into somebody else's shoes and to learn about their experience and to sort of try to ask myself what they're going through, what that feels like, and sort of what what other experiences are out there. Now, that's different from being an empath, according to Dr. Orloff. What she says is that an empath is somebody who really sort of internalizes somebody else's emotions and almost feels them in their own body. So, for example, as an educator, if you have a student come into you and share something deeply personal with you, uh, maybe they're depressed about something or they're stressing out about something, they're, they might lose, maybe they're homeless or something like that. There's a difference between sort of being able to put yourself into that person's shoes and say, wow, that must be really hard. And even being like, what can I do to help? That's different from then carrying that despair and hopelessness or depression with you as your own emotions through the next like two, three, four, five days. You know, as somebody who is in the classroom a lot, does that resonate with you? Is that something that you've experienced before? You did. When you started talking to me about this, I was just like, this is weird. I thought everyone was like this. It's funny you mentioned that book. What's coming back to me is I sort of was reading that term a few months ago because it was something else I was working on. And I believe that book was connected to something I was looking at just for my own sort of introspection. But yes, where I work, I've often been situated in suburbs of Detroit or in Detroit proper. So I have a lot of students who have come to me, not with just little, like little small problems, but like big problems. And when you talked about being homeless, I had a student who was talking to me about that. And then it launched into, you know, how he felt betrayed because his father was never there for him. See, I'm going to start crying about this right now, but his father was never there for him. And now he sees his father on social media and this kid is living out of his car, but now his dad has this new life with a new wife and a new baby. The students are crying. I'm crying in the hallway and like, it just sticks with me. Right. And another student, I remember she was having a really difficult time because 
both of her parents were in prison, both of them. And she'd been brought up in the foster care system. So not only is she first generation college student, she literally has no support. And then she finds out she's pregnant. And I just remember crying in the hallway about that. And so I know absolutely what you mean. And I always felt like kind of like, I remember the one time because someone saw me, I think it was like one of the janitorial staff and they're probably just like, what the heck is going on in this hallway? And and I'm like blubbering and crying and the students crying, you know? And so I, I do, I mean, I think that's part of what I hope makes me a good professor, but this ties back to last week when we were talking about the sort of gendered response and leadership. I don't know that this is because I'm a woman, but I certainly know that I've had a lot of emotional experiences with my students where we I felt deeply connected to them and their lives. I could tell you so many other instances of things that my students have had to go through. And again, they're not just little like, oh my goodness, you know, they didn't have the class that I wanted. I mean, like huge life altering things of homelessness. Um, Someone's dad was arrested for something. So it's hard sometimes though to manage that, Judith, because not only I have all my classwork too, but now I'm thinking about my student who I don't know where they're staying tonight, you know? So this absolutely resonated with me. And I would wager that a lot of us that are in the field probably have this trait. You talked specifically about the arts, and I think there's a connection to that idea of empathy and why we read. But then I think when we think about being an empath, I bet a lot of us in this field, I would hope, right? We would hope that we have sensitive, compassionate people working as educators. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. Um, I think you're probably right. I would love to hear from our listeners if that um, concept resonated with them as well. So based on my long-winded sort of reaction to your prompt about this question of being an empath in the classroom, we have so much to unpack with this term that we're excited to kind of use this as the impetus for next week's episode, because there's so much more to unpack here, thinking about the research, thinking about how this might play out in our home life and our work life, and what some of the ways of thinking about this are in scholarship. Unit, you also are reading something that relates to this a bit, and I'm excited to say we've had a little bit of a, a reprieve or sort of a break from our reading practices, but I'm glad to hear you are back in the saddle, so to speak, with your reading, and you have a book that you'd like to recommend that really kind of relates to what we've been talking about today. Yeah, when I was thinking about this, the the topic of the episode and the general, you know, trying to find answers to the question of, like, why am do I feel so depleted? Um, of course, there's a lot of people online um, talking about that. And there's also a lot of people going to podcasts and talking about that. And so I just picked up a book that I heard about on another podcast that I like to listen to. And the book is called Burnout, The Secret to Unlocking the Stress Cycle. It's by um, two sisters, uh, Nagoski, and um, one has a PhD and the other one has a DMA. And they are talking about burnout and how especially women are affected by burnout in contemporary America. And so this is this has been I'm, I'm only about, you know, a, a chapter and a half into it or something. But it's been really kind of interesting to think about um, the ways that burnout comes about. They do something really interesting in the opening part where they distinguish between the stress and the stressor. And so they're saying that, you know, at the end of the day, you might be you might have done away with your stressor because you're no longer faced with your difficult colleagues or whatever is stressing you out at work. But 
if you're doing it continuously, which is part of the burnout, right? It's like the over and over and over again that gets you to the point of being emotionally drained. Your body doesn't, hasn't completed what they call the stress cycle. And what I like about a lot of these books that sort of talk about the same, uh, these, these same, the same set of questions is that they really um, help me understand how the flight uh, fight and freeze responses work in the brain and what they do to our bodies. And so what they describe in the book is the way that a stressful situation puts you in one of these modes, right? Flight, fight, or freeze. We've all heard of that. And that means that your body has all of these hormones. And this is obviously sort of, they, they relate it back to the times when we were chased by lions or hippos. Um, and what our bodies had to do, of course, was like run away. So these hormones, they shut off all the other systems in the body and they pour all of the energy into running, right? And so once you've run away successfully from the lion, that's sort of like when all of that energy is used up and you've completed the stress cycle. And then they jump sort of to today where we have the situation of like there's a really difficult situation at work happening or something that's, that happens over and over again. Um, if we don't end up completing the stress cycle, that means that we haven't used that energy that our bodies have put into solving this this difficult problem in any way, shape, or form. And so that's that's sort of how far I've gotten. Of course, like one of the replies is like, go running, but they also acknowledge that not everybody likes to go running. And so I'm interested to see like what some of the other um, solutions are that they suggest and especially what happens when you live with your stressors <laughs> right? Um, and you can't ever get really get out. Um, so, uh, so yeah, hopefully I'll be able to report more a little bit about that next week um, and, and share with our listeners how, you know, how the book's moving on. Um, how about you? Have you been reading anything? Well, I have a stack of like eight things that I'm supposed to be picking up. And one of the ones <laughs> that was next to my bed, I thought this was fun. Now that my son is in high school, we can share books. And I was thinking of you because I bet you'll really like this when your kids are a little bit older. He had some assigned reading and the title of the book is My Name is Asher Lev. Have you ever heard of that one? I have not. Um, the author is Shaim Potek. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I have not studied him before. Um, so he's a Jewish American author, former rabbi, and it is a book sort of set in Brooklyn and the Hasidic community in the 1950s. And there's sort of this interesting dichotomy. Um, Asher is growing up and on the one hand, he's kind of like really connected to the strict rules regulation of his religious community. But on the other hand, he's drawn to art and the artistic expression. And so he's kind of having negotiate the sort of really the disconnections between the dogma of the religious world and then this idea that he wants to create and paint and what he wants to create and paint. And he's always like, you know, it's life isn't always beautiful and he wants to show that. So I'm also, I want to say I'm about 90 pages in. I just thought it was kind of fun to be able to read something. My son wrote a little note, like, I hope you like this as much as I did, mom. And I thought that was cute. Oh, that's sweet. Yeah. <laughs> it's always nice to have someone to talk with about a book after you've read it. So it's it's not as dense as other things I've read from that time period. What I mean to say is the reading is pretty easy. So hopefully, who knows, maybe by next time I'll actually be done. Um, this is another one of my sort of treat yourself things that I like to do at the end of the semester. I always find it a little bit sad that I love reading reading fiction was what drew me into our area of study in the first place. And I feel like I don't always have a lot of time to do that. 
during the semester. So typically in December, I try to really, really go heavy into the reading. You know, sometimes I've read three or four books over a break. It just depends on what they are. And if I can really, if I, if the book seems to be something that I can connect to, you know how it is. You can read a couple of books in a week if you want. If it's something you can't put down, right? For me, it's like, if it, you know, if it's something that I'm making myself read, then I I'll won't read for, you know, then I'll read like 10 pages because I, you know, I want to read. But then if it's something I really enjoy, then I read more because I want to read that book. I've gotten to the point, I used to not be able to ever put anything, like to not finish a book. But I've gotten to the point where it's like, okay, there's no point in hanging on to something that I don't actually want to read and then just end up not reading as compared to just saying, all right, this one isn't doing it for me. I'm going to move on to something that'll actually keep my attention and, and help me actually read. So I wonder if that speaks to like sort of where we are in life, because I'm exactly the same. I'd always read a book to fruition, even if I wasn't like really enjoying it. Now I'm just kind of like, I have other things to do. Sorry. You know, sorry, Don DeLillo. I'm just not feeling it right now. (laughs) You know, like it's not speaking to me. I'm moving on. I've noticed too, um, I was looking at my bookshelf and I would say probably 90% of um, what I've read in the last year has been by a female author. So I thought that was interesting as well. And someone asked me, oh, wow, you just, you just really seem to read um, all women authors. And it really hadn't occurred to me, but I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, I guess you're right. So this has been, I think this has been a good conversation. I can always tell when we're doing well, when the conversation goes really fast in the podcast. So if you have any response today to what we're talking about as far as emotional labor and you have anything that you'd like to add to that conversation, we'd be delighted to hear from you via social media. But we're really looking forward to continuing our conversation about being an empath next week. So Judith, if anyone wanted to drop us a line and tell us how we're doing or if they had any notes for us on emotional labor, where can they find us online? We're on Instagram as PhD in Parenting, and then you can also always send us an email at phdinparentingpodcast at gmail.com. And as always, we welcome reviews as well. Feel free to share us with a friend. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. All of those things help other people find us. And so we'd love to hear from you as well. Until next time, thanks for listening.